0: Do you like it? I wish I was 50 years younger no, no, and I'd no. kick your ass. It's over, Mamma mia! He's done it. Anthony Joshua defeats Vladimir Klitschko. Uh,
1: let's get ready to rumble. Welcome, fight fans, once again to career profiles with me, your host Sean Basto, as always joined by Johnston Brown for this latest episode of the series and today's episode is on one of the best Scottish if not the best Scottish fighter of all time it's Ken Buchanan we're going to be talking about his career inside and outside of the ring now before we do that I want you guys to go and check us out of course on social media if you don't already we're at career underscore profiles on twitter And you can go and check out the BTR Boxing Podcast Facebook page where we have all our latest episodes from the Legendary Knight series, this series and the main BTR Boxing Podcast feed. If you've not already checked us out on any of the podcasting apps out there, then please go and do so. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or you can find us on Google or you can even find us on Spreaker Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify and TuneIn please leave us a rating and leave us a review after you've listened to the episode it truly helps spread the word about all the podcasts that we run without further ado then guys this is the next episode of career profiles this is the career profile of ken buchanan the lightweight
0: champion of the world
1: ken buchanan Ken Buchanan, one of the greatest, if not the greatest Scottish fighter to have ever graced the squared circle. And another great pick from the listeners to do for the Career Profiles podcast. Johnston, as always, we're going to go through the life outside and inside of the ring of Ken Buchanan. The highs, the lows, the ecstasy, the agony. One of the greatest Scottish fighters ever, surely.
0: Yeah, I think, I think, I um, I suppose... um... Some would argue maybe Benny Lynch who's probably in there, A the guy that died young in the sort of forties. I think he fought through the early nineteen hundreds. Yeah, I, I would I would have to say, looking at the evidence that, that we've been through today and just watching some watching back some of his fights, an excellent fighter, one of the greatest British fighters over Grace of the origin. And, with, and a remarkable victory as well, which we'll
1: go into. So as always with Career Profiles Podcast, we're going to go through his life, his journey outside of the ring, what led him into the ring. And of course, some of the most notable fights of his career and some of the great stories that we've managed to gather together for this episode. As always, starting from the beginning, Ken Buchanan, as we know, was born on the July 28th, 1945 to his mum, Kathy, and his dad, Tommy, along with younger brother, Alan. Now, they lived in a council house in the suburb of Norfield in Edinburgh, which is obviously the capital of Scotland, and it's a stone's throw away from the coastal region of Portobello. Their garden led down to Figate Burn Park, which lies in the east of Edinburgh, nestled neatly between Duddingston and Portobello. And Ken would swing from the tree ropes and jump the burn. He went to Towerbank Primary School and he spent a lot of time playing football, which often resulted in fights against the other team for the usual regions like... Did that ball cross the line, or did it go over the bar? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: the old goal goalpost for jumpers is something that I'm sure many of us Brits can relate to, and you know, especially those long lunch breaks and debates with, as you mentioned, uh, did it cross the line or go over the bar? You know, it's, it's all fun and games, and but but Ken seemed to 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 enjoy it. He, he seemed to get in the middle of most of those fights, which which he does actually say a quote about, it. and he did says it was just kids' stuff, pushing and pulling, challenging. I could see that some of the kids were scared, but I got a buzz off of it, an adrenaline rush. Although I never knew that's what it was at the time, I especially seemed to like squaring up to somebody much bigger than myself. So, Ken, clearly, I mean, not not, not the bully type, but just one of those kids in the playground that loved a little
1: scrap. Yeah, there was always one. There was, well, there was always more than one, <laughs> of course, in most playgrounds. And obviously, Ken Buchanan was, was one of them, of course. Now, in terms of his home life, it wasn't a bad home life. That drove him to the boxing gym. Nor did he come from a family of boxers. He just enjoyed fighting. But there were two coincidences that drove him to want to become a boxer. In December 1953. When Ken was just eight years old. His dad saw a poster of a film. About the great Joe Lewis called The Brown Bomber. They hopped on a bus. And went to see the film that day at the cinema. And Ken recalls of that magical moment in his book. So when the curtains went back. I was taken away to this other world. Transported. The gyms, the bag, the gloves and the fights in the ring. The close-ups for the nose and snorting of the lips. Pure heroism of the boxers. That is what I wanted to be, a hero.
0: It's quite funny how what we do most of these queer profiles and it always stems from a bad background. But Ken was lucky he didn't have that and it was just literally inspired by this film, The Brown Bomber. And, and as soon as the film finished, Ken decided he wanted to become a boxer. He wanted to be... The world champion just like joe lewis and he asked his dad on the way home if he could go to a boxing gym if he could take up boxing so that was one thing he'd pester his dad for quite a while and there was another coincidence that happened and it was actually down to his aunt agnes who uh, actually bought ken and his cousin robert a pair of boxing gloves now this was mainly because obviously like cousins do spent much of their time especially boys fighting so uh, every weekend they spent sparring in the back garden smashing lumps out of each other <laughs> Well, Ken was obviously fantasizing about becoming a world champion or he was in that world championship fight and so that was the coincidence. So he had he had this film that inspired him and also he his, his aunt gave him some boxing gloves. it was just before Christmas I believe and it was she actually gave him an early present and um, obviously make her laugh a little bit easier, I know that. And so it inspired him and, but the trouble was his dad hadn't fulfilled his end of the bargain in in what felt like for him being eight years old, years, you know, for fact probably more like weeks, is what something that he mentioned in his book and in the end, he plucked up the courage to confront his dad and he called at him in the garden near, near Rosebush and he said, Dad, you remember that Joe Lewis film? And his dad says, Aye, great, wasn't it? And then Ken says, You said you would find me a boxing club. And, and then his dad says, Yes, I said I would find you one and I will. He kept on and on and on. Is that a promise, Dad? Is that a promise? And in, in the end, his dad said, Aye, it's a promise. That was one thing that, that Ken said about his dad is that One one quote that he always said was, never make a promise and not keep it. So from that point, he felt like he knew his dad was going to fulfill his end of the bargain and eventually he was going to get in that club. When I was eight years old, I started boxing.
2: I was only three stone two when I won my first uh, uh, championship. Two fights in one night, 1953. And... I say to my dad when I come out of the ring, I say, right, dad, that's the first title. I say, I'm going to be world champion. He says, well, you stick in, son. He says, leave the woman alone, leave the drinking alone, leave the smoking alone. I say, dad, I'm say i only eight years old. He says, "Ah, well, what I mean, sir, is when you get a bit older, you've got to leave, you can't have all that. I say, "Okay, then, dad, I'll leave all that alone.
1: So like you say, as, as soon as Ken got that promise out of his dad, it was only going to be a matter of time. And that matter of time was only a week later, and his dad was true to his word. He took Ken to the Sparta Amateur Boxing Club on MacDonald Road, Edinburgh and Ken was absolutely over the moon. The name of the club was great to Ken and he was full of beans. Although, his heart was almost broken the moment he walked in. Mr Boyter, who oversaw the juniors, told him that he only accepted kids from nine years old. But Ken had already confessed he was eight. After seeing the disappointment on Ken's face, he consulted with Tommy, Ken's dad, before returning to Ken and saying, It's okay, you're nine years old. What are you? Ken checked it was all right to go along with the lie before saying, my name is Ken Buchanan and I'm nine. Of course, <laughs> for Ken, this was a dream come true. But his dad gave him some words of advice. Bide your time. Build up to it slowly. Learn the trade before you go in with the tradesman. Uh, what an absolute fantastic bit of advice from his dad there.
0: Ah, what a great little quote that is. I won't keep referencing it, but the title legend, the Ken Cannon biography, where it comes from, brilliant read, I really advise anyone to read it, and what a, what a great little bit of advice from his dad, buy your time, build up to only learn the trade before you go going with a tradesman, I mean that is that is the pinnacle of any youngster that wants to become a boxer, I would I'd, I'd say, listen to that quote, and take that old ball because he's bang on, and, and within a few weeks, Ken was the club champion after winning his first two fights at the lightest weight division obviously being eight years old he was three and a half stone that was his three and a half stone class which is nothing can, I believe he said Mohammed Ali said he shedded that in, in a night one time so <laughs> it, it was barely anything so, so Ken did go on to say I still have the medal in some ways it means more than some of the other trophies I have won it always reminds me of my dad and Mr. Boyter." colluding to get me into the spa. So Ken was obviously he was inspired by boxing. He loved it. And, and Ken was beginning to be known as the kid that boxed in school, which obviously being a bit of a fighter in school, he liked to scrap, put a bit of a target on his back. He was involved in plenty of scraps at Tower Bank Primer.
1: So Ken was obsessed with boxing. And his dad caught the bug too. He would be there every night at training. Ken would be the first at the gym and the last to leave. And he said... I lived for boxing. I bought the magazines, the books, studied it like a science. When they would get home, they would continue to study various punches. And he'd say, I'd practice single punches and some combinations, jab, jab, cross jab, cross hook, jab, jab. Those were the words that rang in my ears as I went through session after session of combinations. I know it sounds daft, but those words are like poetry to me now. Now, by the time Ken had moved from Towerbank Primary School to the Portobello Secondary School, he was super fit. He was training in the gym three times a week, then playing rugby in the morning and football in the afternoon on a Saturday. To say Ken was keen on boxing would be an absolute understatement. He lived and breathed it even through his education. He was suffering as a result, but he was never worried. His dad was always there encouraging and helping Ken to improve as much as possible. And his mum, she'd attend every fight as well. And Ken said, You could hear my mum a mile away. She was one of the most fervent shouters at the shows. She'd yell, He's dropping his left, Ken. In over the top, Ken. People just got used to her. Oh, that's Ken's mum, they'd say. (laughs) Brilliant.
0: I think there was even one time he said when he was in the corner and it was at the break and his mum said to him, you know, make sure you chuck the left to the right over the top and it was all like dead quiet. And then some one-on-one one spectator said, do you listen to your mummy? <laughs> and then he was sort of <laughs> laughing. But she was definitely uh, very keen. And uh, you know, he said she was loud and she could be heard. And I know that, that that would have given him a little bit of a spring in every fight he had as an amateur. And once Ken left secondary, secondary school, it, um, it took him only three weeks to find a job, which is obviously a bit different to these days. And uh, he started out as an apprentice carpenter. Uh, or as people like to call it, a joiner. Uh, and he joined a company on Rose Street in Edinburgh. He, he enjoyed, he basically loved being a joiner by a day and boxing at night. Um, and it was a trade that he would actually end up going back to at some points during his career as well, which we will touch on. Now, when fighting at junior level in his amateur days, Ken actually recalled a bout, which was, which was an interesting bout against a guy called Billy Appleby, and... And the two always produced a belt of a fight. And and I believe those in the the town sort of quite enjoyed watching them have a little scrap. But Ethan Candle was quite unusual. Appleby was actually disqualified for headbutting Ken in the balls. (laughs) It was a complete accident, of course. And Appleby actually, what he did was, he threw his shot, he missed it, he's fallen forward, Ken's backed off. And as he's come tumbling down, he's headbutted him straight in the goonies. And he even says in his own words, Jesus Christ balls! That's what he shouted, and uh, <laughs> it was it was from that that the referee decided to call it a low blow. and he actually awarded Ken the win, which Ken even said himself was probably a little bit a uh, bit arsed on Billy. Just just one guy to mention
1: that he enjoyed having a little scrap with uh, in those amateur days. What an absolutely great story that is about <laughs> him falling forward. The thing is, you can just literally picture it as you tell the story about him throwing a punch completely missing, falling forward and headbutting him in the bollocks. What a great story that is. Something that we never knew and something that I've really enjoyed reading and, and, and learning about with Ken Buchanan. Ken Buchanan kind of moved on from junior level to youth before finally getting to the senior level where he took part in his first international in 1963 against Switzerland in the Kelvin Hall in Glasgow when he was only 17. Ken stopped Hans, <laughs> a, Sh- a man in the second round, but lost to the more experienced Jim McMahon later in the year when fighting in the Scottish ABA Championship. Now after McMahon decided to turn pro it left the door open for Ken to be Scotland's first choice in the internationals. It was a European Championships year to be held in Moscow in Russia and although Ken was underage by two years he was still allowed to travel to the Soviet Union as it was known at the time and his first time on an aeroplane as well. Now, he fought the silver medalist, Italian, from the prior championships... ...but just lost out on a majority verdict. The next year, in 1964, Ken won the East of Scotland featherweight title... ...which qualified him to fight in the Eliminators for the British title. After winning his quarterfinal, he lost in the semis by a decision to Kenny Cooper... ...but exacted revenge just a couple of months later. With it being an Olympic year, Ken dreamed of heading out to Tokyo to represent Team GB... But politics emerged its ugly head, leaving Ken out in the cold. There should have been a box-off that included Ken Buchanan, Kenny Cooper and Ron Smith. Now in the end, Ron Smith, who was fighting out of the most powerful club in Britain at the time, was selected ahead of the other two and he would go on to be stopped in the first round. Ken records this particular decision. It was one of those things, like you have in every profession, politics overruling sense Those people in the know in boxing knew that me or Kenny Cooper would have the better choice, but there was nothing we could do about that.
0: It does sound familiar, doesn't it? It's still pretty much like that now. I mean, I suppose maybe not so much with, with representing Team GB, but especially when you get into the boxing amateur side of things, it's just as corrupt, really, at times as as uh, as what it was back then. So, yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, really, really sad for, for Ken because I think it would have been great for him to have obviously gone to Tokyo and represented Great Britain in the Olympics or at least had the opportunity for a box-off But unfortunately weren't to be. But by the time Ken was 19 years old, he had made significant improvement. I think it inspired him going over to the Soviet Union. And, and he also he, he won the Eastern District and the Scottish featherweight titles once again after finally winning the british title when he actually defeated jimmy isaac at the royal albert hall in london he beat him on points and that was in front of jimmy isaac's crowd you know he's in london he said he brought a coach down to support him from portavella but a lot of obviously jimmy isaac's crew were there and he beat him on points which is a great great night for him and a great sense of achievement and, and while starting to think about turning over to professional he actually won twice in scotland in uh, 1965 when a uh, the Scottish boxing team went off to fight a very strong boxing region in Bulgaria at the time, and the Scots actually lost the first comp- competition, which was nine-one, but Ken won his fight. And in the second, they won; they lost seven-two. Ken also winning both fights. Now, the second was actually a disqualification. He does go into quite some detail about this, but after this was due to his opponent, who uh, the Bulgarian guy, who actually was done for biting. Which is something we're quite used to now, even with some of the other fights we've witnessed in the pro game. So, uh, but those two victories actually did land him a seat on the plane in 1965. For the European Amateur Boxing Championships where he picked up a bronze medal.
2: thinking about hanging on and going for the Commonwealth but my dad says to me, son, it's not going to really add a great deal towards your getting a good manager. Like, you know, yeah, you've yeah. got one there, Eddie Thomas down in Wales and uh, he'll take you. So I'll, I just went with Eddie in 65. Well, it, was, it wasn't a way like, you know, it wasn't big money. It was only £50 a fight or something I was getting, you know, but in 1965, £50 was a few, it was yeah. a few
1: bob. So after a successful amateur career, It was time to make the move into the professional ranks. Now, Ken talks about when he turned over and he said, I had won the ABA and now I had to go and fight in the European Championships in East Berlin, where I got the chance to cross the Berlin Wall. There wasn't much more to achieve at the amateur level now. And after some thought, I decided to turn professional. Ken wasn't short of offers. Bobby Neal was an initial favourite, but after he mentioned that he would like to change his style to being less of an outside fighter and that he wanted Ken to move to London, so it was a case of, thanks, but no thanks. (laughs) Now, in the end, Ken chose the former welterweight champion, Eddie Thomas, as a coach and manager, who at the time was the current manager of the reigning British and European champion featherweight Howard Winston. So it was a great place to learn for Ken, and he was able to gain great experience against the future world champion, and he said, We must have boxed hundreds of rounds together, and I'll learn an awful lot from him. Now, while picking up that vital experience with Winston, Ken was also given a bizarre piece of advice from Eddie Thomas, who told him to piss on his hands before bed and rub the piss (laughs) over his eyes. He instructed that this would make your skin go hard, and you won't get caught. Ken, of course, did what he was told, but of course, it never worked. It was just a load of bollocks.
0: <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure if that advice from Eddie was 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 a wind up or not. Obviously, you like know but he did do it. He actually said as though well for, for several, a good couple of years he'd be telling his other stable mates about him. And they were like, what are you talking about, Ken? I think you're off your head, mate. I'm not pissing him in the hand. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, a great, a great little story there between Ken and Eddie. And so when Ken actually turned pro uh, in the summer of 1965, it was a boxing commentator who we all know, was Reg Gutteridge, who had been watching him closely, obviously, through the amateurs. And he actually went on to say that he wasn't convinced that he would actually make the grade in the pros game. And he actually said in his own words, I underestimated him very much when he turned pro. I always thought he would have too much of an amateur style, but I under- underestimated him. He took a punch well and could hit hard. I always thought he was the pretty boxer all the time in the amateurs, but he turned into a really hard pro. So even Red's there, not quite convinced that Ken Buchanan was going to make the grade cut the grade in the pros, but. Boy, he was well
1: wrong. Ken's first professional fight came against Brian Tonks, who was one and one at the National Sporting Club in Piccadilly in London, and he stopped him in two rounds. From 1965 through to 1966, Ken had 16 fights, with 16 wins and six knockouts. During this period, Ken met Carroll at an Edinburgh disco, and by 1967, they'd moved in together on the outskirts of Edinburgh before becoming engaged. Eddie and his dad kept Ken focused on the boxing while maintaining his patience for a domestic title shot. Ken said, I was a tradesman now, but Eddie and my dad were shaping me into a craftsman. After meeting Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, in August of that year, he finally got a shot at the vacant Scottish lightweight title on January the 23rd, 1967, in Glasgow against John Macmillan, who was 6'10" and 3, who he outpointed over 10 rounds. And by October, he would be fighting an eliminator for Maurice Cullen's British title against the very experienced Spike McCormack, who was 42, 38 and 12, coasting to a 12 round decision. Spike turned up the heat in the final round and threw everything he had at Ken, but he managed to survive the late onslaught. And Ken said, he was my hardest opponent since I turned professional.
2: Brian Tongues. Do you have much of a memory of that actual fight? Oh, it was a, it was a hard boy, like, you know what I mean? It was a good induction into the boxing game, like, you know? He gave me a good fight, It was in the National Sporting Club, the Café Royal, in London, and I stopped him in about three rooms or something, three or four rooms, and that was when oh started off. But there was a lot of guys my age and my size and what have you like that used to be training and we used to work out together and all the in the Sparta Amateur Boxing Club in McDonald Road in Edinburgh, and I worked out there. And things just came to a top when I got the chance. Oh, I shot at the, the British title. It was my 22nd, 22nd, 23rd fight or something like that. And then Morris Scotland came along. He was a British, likely champion. I got a shot at him and I beat him. Thought so I stopped him, I think. I think it was a
0: 13th round or a 12th round or something like that. He
2: didn't come out like you know.
0: A really good learning curve for Ken, again against those... Two fellas in, in Macmillan and McCormack and four months later in February 1968 at the Angelo American Sporting Club in London. Ken finally got his shot at the British title against Maurice Cullen, who was a 40 five and 2 Now, Cullen was put down twice in the sixth, twice in the ninth before Ken closed the show in the 11th with a flurry of shots that basically was unable to get up from. And he, he did recall the shot. He, he threw this flow in one of them, actually nailed him, and he went right down, hit the canvas, and he could see his eyes. He was gone. Ken had become the British lightweight champion in just his 24 fight, which, you know, probably today seems quite a lot. Back then, not so much. And an overwhelmed Ken rejoiced over, over this fact, and he recalled the joyous moment, and he said, Ken Buchanan, British champion, I could not believe it. I think I cried, but I can't remember. It was such a powerful moment in my life. And that same year, after becoming British champion, Ken and Carol got married.
1: So following another nine victories and zero defences of his British title, Ken actually felt his career was stalling and became a little bit disillusioned with boxing. He was training hard, but fighting guys that were not on his level for as little... £1,500 a year obviously this wow. was probably a little bit more back then, you're probably talking double that the money was poor, he had no big fights and none in the horizon plus he was fighting in small venues that didn't excite him so he actually decided to retire briefly and went back to being a joiner and he sort of <laughs> speaks about this moment I returned my Lonsdale belt to the British Boxing Board of Control and asked them to cancel my contract with Eddie Thomas not boxing for someone as obsessed as Ken Buchanan would have been very, very difficult, but nothing would prepare him for the tragedy of losing his mum Kathy, who at the age of only 51 passed away. Eddie Thomas attended the burial of Ken's mother, and it was at the funeral that Ken decided he would return to the ring, and he had his eyes set on a world lightweight title. He told Eddie, I want to be the champion, so that when I go and visit my mum's grave, I can show her my world championship belt.
0: Yeah, it's funny how that happens, isn't it? How you have such a, you know, he's obviously disillusioned with boxing. He wasn't, didn't feel like he was going anywhere, training hard for patents. And then obviously you have that tragic incident where he loses his mum. And sometimes, you know, in tragedy, as, as we all know, something good comes from it. And, and that's what it was. And his mum obviously inspired him. And So once of his brief retirement, he uh, began the next phase of his career. And he had his eyes obviously set on that world title. But first was the European. Now, once again, Eddie and his dad were teaching him patience like they did as he was sort of working the ladder on the domestic scene. And they, they, another great quote they said to him was, by the inch, it's a cinch. But by the yard, it is hard. Ken decided to, he, was, he was ready to fight Spaniard Pedro Carrasco, uh, who was actually the reigning European champion. But he actually stepped up to the light world away So the British Boxing Board of Control put Ken forward as a challenger uh, and it was accepted to fight Miguel Vasquez. And Miguel Vasquez was 38-1-1. His only loss actually came against Carrasco. Now, the fight would be held in Madrid on January 29, 1970. The day of the fight, Ken and his team travelled to Madrid. So on the day, they're jumping on a plane going to Madrid. and, and, And Ken said he was super fit. He wasn't too worried about that unusual you'd expect someone to at least go a few days before if not a week but later that day eddie picked up some weighing scales to check ken's weight now ken never had a problem with weight always hit you know as he was hitting the scales he even said to himself it was a matter of just knowing how much underweight he was just to work out how much he could eat because that was how easy he was making weight but to everyone's disbelief he's three pounds over now he spent most of the evening in the sauna and he didn't eat a single thing or drink anything. Now, I can actually record, I remember waking up on the morning with a mouth like a badger's ass. And uh, <laughs> when, it, when it came to the weighing, he ended up jumping on the scales. In fact, everyone obviously a bit overruled, not quite sure was, what's going to come up. And the scales read that he was three pounds underweight. <laughs> so the actual scales that Eddie had picked up were wrong. And, uh, Eddie basically quickly... Got himself out of that building because he knew that Ken was going to be absolutely fuming with him. And he, he actually says, I was so mad I wanted to throw Eddie, but at the same time I was relieved. So, bit of a bit of an unsettling time for, for Ken. Never, ever having a problem with weight. He did never have a problem with weight. Had to spend his time in the sauna, not eating, not drinking. Yeah, it weren't good preparation for, his, for a big fight for a European title.
1: And a mouth like a badger's ass as well, has it, in his own words.
0: <laughs> Brilliant.
1: So, in the turbulent atmosphere in Spain, where Ken was booed on his way to the ring, during the fight and returning to the dressing room, it went the 15-round distance. Ken and the British reporters all thought he'd actually done enough to win, but as the referee was due to announce his winner, a crowd of Spaniards cornered the referee in the ring, manoeuvred him over to the Velasquez corner before lifting his hand in victory. Ken's promoter, who was Jack Solomons at the time, tried to get the referee to present his scorecard, but he couldn't. In fact, not even the British reporters saw that scorecard. That's absolutely crazy. So nobody nobody knows how that actually went down. It was absolutely crazy that all these people were able to get the referee manoeuvring over to the Spaniard's corner and basically... It was like it feels like they forced the referee into making that decision. it seems yeah. a bit seems a bit dodgy, it seems a bit untoward. Never happened in this day and age, of course. But for Ken Buchanan at that time, it was a setback. But he was always wanting to come back from these setbacks in life and he was eager to get back in the ring. So a month later, he comes back and he outpoints Leonard Tavares, who was sixteen six and four in Piccadilly, and then Chris Fernandez, twenty two and four in Nottingham, before he signed to fight an up-and-coming boxer in Brian Hudson, who was 16-1. and 1. Now, Brian Hudson was a very useful, hard-punching Londoner. It would be Ken's first defence of the British title... ...that he'd briefly given back to the British Boxing Board of Control... ...and it was looking like he'd lose it... ...when he was cut badly over his right eye in the second round. Now, during the break, between the fourth and the fifth round... ...Eddie was going to go and stop the fight... ...but Ken convinced him to give it another round. It was in that fifth that Ken landed a big punch square on the chin... That knocked Hudson out for the count.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting story. Because obviously, Ken even says when he went in, he knew this fight was going to be over. And he he didn't need the setback of obviously losing the fight again against his up-and-comer. And and he said when he went in there, he was looking for the shot. And, you know, when you're trying to look for the shot at times, you just don't find it. And he, said he, just literally just, he just dropped the left hand. He seized the opportunity and landed a big punch. And he, he really did floor him. And it was a bit touch and go, really, whether he was going to get through it. And he did. He managed to. And a good win, really, for, for Ken. And uh, two months later, Ken receives a call from his promoter, Jack Solomons. Jack Salomons, if anyone doesn't know, it's the same Jack Salomons that, that got Sugar Ray Robinson over to Britain and fought Randy Turpin. as the same Jack Salomons. You have to listen to Sugar Ray's career profile for that. Yeah, Jack Salomons, Gives him a bell. He calls up Ken. He says, Hello, you miserable Scots git. He says, Listen, Ken, how would you like a fight for the World Lightboat title? Ken responding, Aye, right. Why not make it two World titles? Thinking he was going to wind up before Eddie and his dad got him to wind him up. And then Jack repeated, How would you like to fight for the World title? You Scots git. <laughs> Ken was still unsure. You're kidding me, Jack. Then it's me. No. I'm tying up the deal with an agent in New York, Dewey Forgetter. So that was it. He was being offered a chance to fight a certain Ishmael
2: Laguna. He took the fight because they thought it was going to be easier. Yeah. But I can see this now because I think he took me too easy at the first fight and got the fight of his life. It was in Miami and I was waiting to go in. I said, I'm going to the You know, I heard a big cheer and all this nonsense and I thought, what the hell is that? They made a big noise. I'm not even out there yet. No, no, he can't. He says, he's in the ring. I said he can't be in the ring. I said I go in the ring first. He said no. He says he's went. He's went and jumped in the ring. That was Laguna, aye. He's jumped in the ring, in front of me. It was 90 to 100 degrees in heat and um, 15 rounds, one minute rest. He didn't even get a minute rest. When the bell goes, it goes ding, and it takes you about what, five seconds to walk back to your corner. And it takes you about Ten seconds to come out your corner. My dad asked this woman if, if he could borrow a parasol so that he can keep the fight. My manager bending over doing my cuts, like you know, cleaning them up and that, like you know, try to stop them from bleeding, like you know. My dad would be standing there with a the parasol over me, like you know, over my head, like giving me a wee bit shade.
1: Carlos Alita was Ishmael Ngluna's manager. I was looking for a soft touch for Laguna, a stand-up fighter, just the kind that Laguna liked. And Solomons, being the promoter, put Ken's name forward. Not that Jack thought Ken was going to be a layup, but because, of course, that he'd earned some decent money. But so would Ken. Now, two days later, it was confirmed, but the fight would be on Laguna's terms, which meant the fight would start at 2pm in the afternoon when the heat could reach as high as 130 Fahrenheit in an outdoor baseball stadium in San Juan, Puerto Rico on September 26, 1970. Ken wasn't bothered. He was more pissed off by the way the Americans thought it was going to be an easy touch. And he said, a fucking patsy. I'm going to beat this guy if only for what they've said. Patsy? I'll give them patsy. Ken would earn $10,000, the equivalent of £4,000. And half of it would go in a new car. A new Sovereign, which was worth £2,000. And Ken had ordered it before the fight, telling the salesman that if he didn't win, he won't be back to buy it. But he was that confident... <laughs> that he would win, that he would definitely be back to buy it.
0: <laughs> yeah, a great little story there. Where he, 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 Half of his purse as well, four grand, you know, two grand on his car. He, knew he wanted. He said he wanted it. He didn't really care. He wanted to win it. He knew he'd get some more money in his next fight. So five years after turning pro, Ken packed up them tartan shorts of his and jet off to Puerto Rico for the biggest challenge of his life. In his own words, he said, I never realised I was actually setting myself up for. The minute you opened the door, it was, oh, Jesus, it was like hitting a wall of heat. If the challenge of the World World title wasn't hard enough, there was also a life-changing moment unfolding in Ken's life at the same time. His wife, Carol, was ready to give birth to their first son, Mark, while Ken was actually in Puerto Rico, and nine days before the fight, he received a call from Carol's mum and, And she told him, you have a beautiful son. And Ken was over the moon. He couldn't wait to get back to his family. But first, he had to overcome Laguna. I believe he went down and had a drink with his dad and Eddie. A drink He literally said he had a glass of champagne or a mouthful of it. And he left the bottle to them too. And he was overjoyed with it. He was well happy. But obviously, it it allowed him a little bit of time to forget the fight. But he got straight back on it. Laid down in his room, air-conditioned room. And then he was ready for it. And he really just... His mum was set he wanted to bring out Thailand to
1: his new family. So Ishmael Laguna who was sixty three, six, one at the time, was of course an outstanding fighter that was recognised as the number one lightweight. This would be a huge challenge, even without the scorching heat. Ken's dad recalled their walk to the ring. We were directed wrongly to the ring, so by the time we got there, Laguna had already picked the corner that was completely in the shade, while Ken's was out in the sun. We borrowed an umbrella from a woman in the crowd at ringside so they could hold it over Ken while he was in the corner. Now, it was Mm. 120 degrees on the day of their 15-rounder. And the Panamanian icon was used to the heat, of course. Yet he wanted to get every single advantage possible. To everyone's surprise, the fight was very close. And after the ninth, when a cut opens up on Ken's left eye, the fight is dead even going in to that 13th round. And Ken decides... I'm going to change up my style. I'm going to be a bit more aggressive. Uh, and I'm going to push myself in these last three rounds. Which was the best thing he could have ever have done. Now, after the final bell had sounded, a melee ensued in the ring. Everybody gets in the ring. And the result ends up getting delayed.
0: Judge, Tony Castellano. Eight, six, one even. cannon, Jimmy Devlin. 9 to 6, Buchanan!
1: When the scorecards are finally read, it's 144 to 143 to Laguna, and two judges had it 143, 144, and 144, 145 to Ken Buchanan. So Ken Buchanan (laughs) becomes the world lightweight champion. His promoter, Jack Solomons, congratulated Ken on his victory by saying, Well done, Ken, you Scots get. And Ken responded, (laughs) Not bad for a fucking patsy. eh?
0: <laughs> really brilliant. I mean, what a moment for him. You know, he's got his new young family at home and he's just beating a guy as good as know Laguna in his own backyard. And the fact that he tanks up, you know, it was so close. I mean, from what was, I've sort of watched, you can, you can just about work it out in the black and white that's on YouTube. And it is very, very even. And, and he really does change up. the start those last three rounds, he just goes for broke with his side. He even said he was exhausted. But yet, it still felt refreshed. It was a weird feeling. He said it was those last three rounds. He just just went for it. And his corner advised him. Eddie and his table was sort of saying, you know, keep doing what you're doing. But he switched it up and and it was enough. And that was those last three rounds. And you read the reports. If he didn't do that, he may not have got the win. So that just shows just, you know, Ken Buchanan obviously becoming the the world champion. And, you know, it was 11 months after Ken's mum died. And he finally got that marquee victory. And he spoke very wholeheartedly. About the disappointment, of his mum obviously not being there to witness his dreams come true, and in, in, in a landmark victory that will always be remembered—one of the, as Britain's greatest or Scottish greatest victories, surely ever. Now, uh, in his, his own words, he said, "She was unable to see me. I wish she had been there, but she would seen me all right. As my dad says, she was looking down, watching me. It was hard, but it helped me a great deal in that fight." And she would say to me in the later rounds, when she could see that I was getting tired, "Come on, son, throw a few more for your mum." So you know, and he, when he when he did say that quote, that was actually on a documentary on YouTube, and it really gets cut up about it it was really emotional just talking about all those years on so I mean just showed I me mean, what a magnificent fight and a magnificent achievement for Ken Buchanan
2: I felt i like it it was near the end of the fight <laughs> it wasn't at the beginning or in the middle no. it was near the end of the fight I felt that you know that I had him at the, at the end of the ropes pressurising him too much like you know and he was running away This stream a wee bit like you know And no, it, was, it was a hard fight it was a harder fight than Duran Duran was his sparring partner for that fight that we had in Madison Square Gardens 1970
1: Absolutely a magnificent achievement, bringing the world title back to Scotland, and in a fight that would be remembered for many, many years, even past this point of where we are in time. Now, it will always be remembered of one of the greatest, if not the greatest, victory on foreign soil. Now, considering the magnitude of the victory, only five people welcomed Ken Buchanan back to Scotland, all of which were his closest family and friends, due to the victory barely being covered in the Scottish newspapers, meaning the general public were completely unaware that they actually had a world champion in their midst. Part of the reason for this would have been down to the British Boxing border Control not recognising the WBA title as a legitimate title. They only recognise the WBC and all the politics would play a part in what Ken would decide to do in his fight next. It was at Madison Square Garden. Three months later, he fought against the undefeated Italian-Canadian Donato Paduno, The lack of exposure was part of the reason why Ken took this fight, plus the added incentive of fighting on the same bill as Muhammad Ali. He won a non-title fight at £147 by unanimous decision, and the Garden fans actually gave him a wonderful applause. The fight is more remembered for what happened before. Now, Muhammad Ali was, of course, the main attraction of the night in his fight against Oscar Bonavina. Now, Angelo Dundee approached Ken Buchanan in the dressing room And actually asked if he could share the dressing room with Ken Buchanan and his team. And Ken said, away with you, don't be daft. Angelo Dundee replied, no, no, Arlie hasn't been allocated a room. And Buchanan says, okay, you can come in. But I'll tell you what, that lot aren't coming in as well. And at that point, he's referring to Arlie's massive entourage. So Ken goes and draws a line down the middle of the room with a piece of chalk on the floor. And Arlie asks, hey man, what are you doing? And Ken Buchanan says, I'm drawing this line to show that that's my side and that's your side. Don't cross that line or you'll get that holding up his (laughs) fists. So after a few (laughs) seconds of silence, Muhammad Ali bursts out laughing before crossing the line and getting pushed back by Ken in nothing more than banter. Truly, truly amazing story, that.
0: It really is, isn't it? What a brilliant story. And, and, And he says Ali was always just, even after he pushed him back, Ali sort of giving it the old, you know, how dare you? You know, you're not the headline act, and <laughs> it was just all that typical banter with Muhammad Ali. And and Ken said he was always, it was just an absolute pleasure to be around, and it actually relaxed him going into the fight as well. So what, what a fantastic! I mean, he he comes back to no one in Scotland after being a lightweight champion of the world, and obviously you know he wanted to fight in Edinburgh. That's what he wanted. He wanted to fight in Scotland for his first defence. This wasn't a defence. But he got to fight at Madison Square Garden as the co-main event to at Ali. I mean, that's just incredible. What a what a fantastic story for this young guy that was coming through. And then, and Ray Clark from the British boxing border control eventually contacted Ken, and he asked if he would fight for the vacant WBC title against a guy called Mando Ramos. And if he won, he would finally be recognised by them as a legitimate world champion, which is incredible. I mean, how much more does this guy need to do? crazy. Now the fight would take place in Los Angeles on February 12th 1971 but Ramos actually pulled out a week before the fight with a groin strain. In the end Ruben Navarro who was 24-2 and 2 replaced him and he had been actually training in elimination as well so he was ready and he was keen and the funny thing is as well was that it was the WBC that actually did, they came out, they actually released the, in the press that they would put their, their uh, title on the line because they weren't sure, but they thought they'd stick Ruben Navarro in and it would be basically for, because there's only two titles at the time, so this was to be undisputed lightweight champion. And, and it was a conclusive but hard-fought win for Kim where he suffered a perturbated eardrum, but he did win on points over 15 rounds and he did become the undisputed lightweight champion of the world. This time, when he arrived home, he was greeted to an absolutely new welcome by thousands at the airport. It was like a sea of tired, he said, before parading around town on an open bus.
1: About time he got that recognition at that point in time, becoming the undisputed lightweight champion of the world. Absolutely amazing achievement. So a couple of days later, Eddie Thomas contacted Ken to discuss the purse of the fight, which totaled $60,000. Instead of celebrating and looking to the future... They end up going into a dispute over what cut Eddie should take. And it didn't end well, as Ken decided to finish with Eddie as soon as his contract ran out in eight months' time. And he would promote himself with his dad as his lead trainer. So by September 1971, Ken had tried to secure a fight in Edinburgh, but failed to negotiate a venue. And in the end, he had to settle for the top of the bill at Madison Square Garden in a rematch with Ishmael eh? Laguna. Hey, not bad at all. So we get that rematch with Ishmael Laguna. in the third round, Laguna actually catches Ken Buchanan with a good shot that swells up his left eye almost immediately. So to prevent the eye from closing completely, Eddie makes the quick decision to slice the lump under the eye with a razor blade to reduce the swelling. Now, Laguna keeps trying to pound away at the eye, but Ken adjusted and he worked the body and fought aggressively, which kept Laguna on the back foot and unable to attack his eye. The fight goes the 15 rounds again, but this time... Ken Buchanan's win was unanimous.
0: What an incredible story as well. I mean, I don't, obviously you're not allowed to do that anymore with the old razor blade. And, and he did actually say that apparently he was told that it was, it was this actual fight that, that it was uh, was it in a Rocky film. He said it was in a rock, one of the Rocky films where they did, they did the same thing. And he said they were inspired by this fight. It's a little note there that he, he mentioned whether it was true or not, we don't know. But I mean, what a great story. And so following his success that year Ken was actually honoured with an MBE at Buckingham Palace by the Queen Mother. He also scooped the Sports, per- sports Personality of the Year Award. And he actually danced as the Sportswoman of the Year Award, who was actually Prince Anne. I think she did she win a gold in the Olympics. And I think her daughter went and did the same thing in London. And, and Ken was obviously a huge sporting celebrity and had become a household name in Great Britain. And his contract with Eddie, Eddie Thomas had ended and after a failed attempt to sign a contract with the british boxing board of control present with something to do with the fact that it was there was the uk contract and the american contract and the fact that ken buchanan didn't feel like he was being just wasn't it apart from this this great parade he had he didn't really feel that the british boxing board of control were behind him so he fought plenty of times in in america so unfortunately their contract was never drawn up and, and Eddie actually went to the press as well, I believe, and said some stuff. And, and that's how it ended. Their relationship basically ended on, on an unfortunate sour note.
1: Which happens a lot in boxing, to be fair. Again, even in this yeah. day and age, it does happen. You do get a few sour notes and people go into the press over it. So following two wins over Elford, 41-1 and 1 at Wembley, and Andrea Stein at 25-2 and 2 in Johannesburg, South Africa, Ken was approached by Madison Square Garden, offering him to fight Roberto Duran on June 26, 1972. The WBC ordered Ken to fight Pedro Carrasco, or they strip him, and the WBA ordered that he fight Duran. Ken's decision, of course, was going to be an easy one, and he said, after tossing and turning for about two seconds, I phoned my dad and I told him I was going to take a fight with Duran. After several weeks of training, Ken flew out to New York to finish off his schedule at Grossinger's and he drafted in Gil Clancy to arrange his sparring partners. Ken Buchanan made his third defence of the WBA lightweight title against Roberto Duran who was 28-0 at Madison Square Garden. Now, Duran scored a flash knockdown in the first round and continued with a little bit of dirty tactics throughout while on the inside although Ken felt the fight was actually close. The referee and both judges actually had Duran winning by a wide margin going into the 13th. Now, Duran catches Ken with a low blow after the bell ended in round 13. Buchanan, he collapses to the canvas and he's grabbing his bollocks at this point in time. Now, he was able to get up, but he had to be helped to his corner. The referee took a look at Buchanan and he stopped the fight. Ken says, They helped me to my corner and then the referee said I couldn't come out. I told him, I could keep boxing but he said you're not coming out. Ken was disgusted with the decision. He described the moment he returned to his dressing room. I took my pants off and you could see the mark on my protector where it had been hit several times. My balls are turning red. They're swelling up. Although gutted, he reflected on the fight a few days later. You can't change the past but I'll tell you something. You can change the future. I had a contract for a return against Duran in three months. As we now know that rematch would never go on to happen. I'd hit him
2: with a few punches and it was coming up from the end of the bell and I was just moving to the side and the bell went and then land just stepped in and it went bang and that was it. I was like, well, in a wee bit of days and he just said, oh, well, no, 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 that's it, he says, that's it. And I walked away. And he walked over to Duran's camp and lifted Duran's hand up. Nah, it was ridiculous. But there's nothing I can do about it and his manager knew that I had a wee bit, a bad night. It wasn't a great night. I had. He knew that a return fight with two, between two, and two of us, mm. I'd win it no problem, like you know, because I'd be watching out for his low punches.
0: Yeah, see, it's, it's another interesting fight for for those that have not seen Ken Buchanan against Roberto Duran. It is there. It's on YouTube. It's one of the fights you can actually see in, in decent coverage. And and, and and to be fair, I mean, I've watched the fight. I believe Roberto Duran was the fight, and I, I can see Ken Buchanan feels like he's, he's tight. Duran, for me, is in front. He is a bit dirty. He does go a bit low a few times, not just the once. But, you know, and he a punch after the belt. Um, and I suppose within the rules, the referee would have been within his right to stop that fight and actually disqualified Duran. But he went the other way. And he obviously decided and opted to, to say that he couldn't continue and give the Duran the victory. We, I mean, we've done a career profile on Duran, and you, you can... You can listen to that and and find out what the was like after the ken buchanan win because he, he he said he'd win it for his idol was ishmael laguna that's, that's who he went out to, to win it for and he did go out on the piss so it doesn't surprise me that although they had in the contract that he was going to fight again in three months i don't think the would have been in any condition to have taken that fight so yeah it's a harsh one on ken uh it's funny because i mean it even Hugh mackinveney um he actually says, when, he, when he, on this documentary, he was talking about, it, and he was saying, I could understand why Ken was sort of distraught with it and a bit disgusted. But if he had had that rematch and fought Duran, Duran would have beaten more convincingly. Where would he of Korea have gone after that? And, and that's an interesting thing to think about. End of the day, he's lost two fights now. And those two fights was obviously a dubious one over in Spain and then Duran, which, again, another dubious loss with, with the shot below the belt. I mean, have you seen the fight? I mean, it is a close fight, but I think Duran does edge it.
1: Yeah, it's a very, very close fight. But I think, as we covered in our career profiles for Roberto Duran, I think we kind of felt like he was obviously getting the better of him, and and you know, there's obviously arguments to say that people felt like Henry Buchanan had kind of quit the fight, and debates that yeah. could be these are debates that could be had until till the cows come home, as they say. So Ken, of course, wanted that rematch. He continued to chase for the rematch with Duran, and it was promised it would be around Christmas time. And then Duran got injured, so Ken was asked to fight Carlos Ortiz sixty-one six and one on the undercard of Muhammad Ali against Floyd Patterson at the Madison Square Garden. Again, he accepted. In what was his fifth fight at MSG, and he gave Carlos Ortiz an absolute hiding before Ortiz surrendered on his stool in the sixth round.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's another marquee win. Carlos Ortiz, obviously beyond his best at the time, but a great lightweight and. And to have done what he did at another another fight you can watch and he does it's a great performance from Ken Buchanan. and he says himself that, you know, he wished it was Durant you when know, as he was bashing him up, he was in his head he was always going he, he was he it was Durant he was beating kind of thing. But you know, he, he gets the win and, and but say after that Ken was actually matched with or, or before he was matched with Jim Watt, you who know, Jim Watt we all know is a commentator, but he was also a fighter, a very good one. And he was quite young and green at the time, but Jim Watt was fifteen and two. But before that fight, he stopped to undefeated Chang Kill Lee, who was actually 19-0 and 0 in the second round. And once again, it was in his adoptive home, the, the Garden, the place he actually loved. He really felt that, that, that had become his home now. It's just interesting that this guy from Port Vela is now nice saying the Garden's his home. And, and it was an entertaining fight between Watt and Buchanan when they fought in Glasgow for the British lightweight title. I can't sort of the laugh of me, think of two Scottish guys fighting for the British lightweight title. I mean, that, that must have been a big fight at the time, especially over there. And and Ken did just get the nod by a referee George Smith, who actually scored it seventy-four and a half to seventy-two and a half. And basically, the experience was a difference in the night. Ken was open and said that he said if Jim Watt was a little bit wasn't as green and he had a bit more experience, then it would have been a, a closer fight. But Ken, winning it, he
1: actually went on to win the long Belt out right in this fight as well. So Ken won his next 10 fights as he continued to chase that rematch with Duran, or at least get himself into a position for a world title shot. He fought in Miami, New York, Toronto, Copenhagen and Calgary, where he picked up the European lightweight title against Antonio Pudu, 52-2-1, and and with a knockout in the sixth round. The same guy that had jumped ahead of him for a world title fight the year earlier in his personal life ken and carol had the second baby karen two weeks before he defended his european title against leonard tavares who at this point now was 28 13 and 5 with a 14 round stoppage in paris so ken's going all over the world at this point he's fighting everywhere but his hometown and his home country of scotland strangely enough so ken was a few months off 30 he had lost two fights in 58 he'd put away a few quid he had business interests growing and a young family to think about. So he contemplated retiring. The problem was, he was still desperate for Duran, or at least a title shot. The British Boxing in Border Control eventually matched Ken with Guts Ishimatsu, who was 28, 11 and 6, the WBC World Champion. And it was to take place in Tokyo and Japan on the 27th of February, 1975. Now, as we talked about in Ken Buchanan's career, he had persistent... Problems with his left eye and it didn't help when he was thumbed in the same eye by a Japanese sparring partner before the fight. Ken felt that like he deserved the nod but the ref and both judges scored in guts favour and after that fight Ken said I could not see with the left eye from the sixth round. Ishimatsu is a strong fighter but I thought I was the winner because I landed the cleaner punches. After losing out on the world title defeat Ken defended his European title once again by defeating Giancarlo Usai in Calgary in Italy, and he was 27-2 at the time. So he loses that fight against Ishimatsu, which was a really difficult fight for him, with obviously the issues with the eye problem, which we've been talking about there. And then he goes on to defend that European title. So he even though he loses that, that title shot, he's still got his European title, so he's still able to defend it, and he's still going to people's backyards as well. And that's one thing that I think we've not overly touched on throughout the episode of, of Ken Buchanan, is that... He fought most of his career outside of his native country and he fought a lot of guys on their home turf and that's something for me that I have an absolute newfound respect for going through his career profile.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then I think you're uh, that, that is the one thing that you, you don't really see very often. He, he was a bit of a road warrior. He was not scared to travel. He... He was always a confident guy. Some some people say he was a bit cocky, a bit hard to uh, you know, he was a bit of a tough lad and and he, hard to work with, I suppose. That's what many felt. Um with him and his dad and the rest of the world was sort of looking in and he always made sure he looked after himself and his dad and but he was a cocky. I mean, look at the victories, I mean, apart from yeah, he you know, he goes over to Japan for one. Uh, he obviously wanted a, the the Duran shot, didn't get that, goes to Japan, not fighting to do it. You know, he even said in in his book he was sort of saying he had been the guy that actually lost to Laguna. He didn't go in there too confident, but he felt that, you know, he's got a chance. And obviously the persistent eye, he was constantly getting cut in that left eye so many times. It was, he had surgeries on the eye, he had so many stitches in it, that it was uh, obviously playing his toll and getting fun in the eye before the fire was helping. And yeah, and then he did, you know, he went on to defend that title in Italy and then Ken hammered the Italian with a flurry of blows during the 12th before you had handed us through in the towel. And the fans, apparently, this is a crazy story where, So they threw in the towel, the referee obviously stops the fight, and literally straight away, the fans went absolutely berserk, and they were launching bottles and cans and programs and whatever they could find to throw in the ring. And a bottle actually landed on Tommy's head, cutting it open, and he was literally, because Tommy was covering Ken, so you can imagine the chaos. And during this time, you sides on the floor that unconscious from, from being knocked out by Ken. <laughs> Why they were kicking off, I don't know. And, and before, they had, before this, he had actually gone to Calgary before that, and he actually had this crazy welcome. Well, when he won, he was carried out back to his dressing room. So he was sort of saying the difference between the same venue, but just two different times. And obviously the Italians at the time were, weren't happy. He was actually uh, led out of the ring by the British Army. He even says as he's coming out of his dad, cut, literally, claret coming down his head. He's, he's hitting spectators. And so as I'm walking out fighting again just because they're just attacking us. It's crazy. I mean, you don't think this, you don't get the footage like we do with, with Hagler when he come over here. But yeah, it sounds like an absolute chaos time for a, so for Ken, but he's got the win. I mean, he defended his European title.
1: Following that particular win, Ken actually retired from boxing again and decided to concentrate on his family and his hotel that he had. It was a chain that he had that he'd invested money in, which is something we were touching on earlier with his business interests. Now, his left eye wasn't in great shape at this point either, and he would have to wear glasses for the rest of his life. Life seemed nice until Carol wanted a divorce, which resulted in Ken having to sell his hotel and pay her half, with money becoming a bit scarce. Ken went back to becoming a joiner once again, but the pull of wanting to box again was too much of a temptation to ignore, so he did return to the ring in the summer of 1979, and he was at the age of 34. From that summer to January the 25th, 1982, he fought nine times and won four of them, Once again, as always with these stories, another great fighter comes out of retirement to perform only a fraction of what they once could. And unfortunately, this is the same story again with Ken Buchanan coming out of retirement to try and get a bit of money, but then also, in some respects, damaging his his legacy that he'd created. He did also fall into an abyss in his personal life of alcoholism. But on a positive note, he was actually inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 2000.
2: People see oh, he lost thousands, he lost, it. I never lost that at all. A big banking company lost me my money. I mean, people say I went bankrupt and all that, that is the biggest load they cry. Ken Buchanan has never been bankrupt in his life. That was nothing like I never even reached a gutter, like, you know, I never even got off the pavement. There's times I just get a bit fed up and I just go and have a, have a swallow. I go to Paul's pubs and that and where I'm not going to be abused. I didn't go stout about pubs where nobody cares me or, or they think they can me or they want to have a go at me or something like that. I, I just didn't do things like that. I, I think I, I feel myself that, um, you know, I, I've been to these people and these people and I tried to eat, eat, eat and that, like, you know, but oh, I just... Um, I, I couldn't take it, you know what I mean? All the keep speaking about, oh, and nah, I drink this, and nah, I drink that, and nah, I do this, and nah, I do that. I'm thinking, oh well, nah, no, I'm not. as bad as that, like, bar, like, you know. I mean, I get drunk and I get drunk and I fall about the place, but I have a laugh. I didn't get any fights, and I didn't go fight with anybody, like, you know. Um, it has played a big part in my life, the drink, like, you know. And uh, well, as I say, like, you know, well, the drink caused the break up in my second marriage, not the first. But these are things that happen to you, I suppose, like, you know. But it has been a I'd be a big
1: problem for a whale drink like you know. A statue was designed for Ken at the back end of twenty nineteen to be put up in Edinburgh. And I think it's I think it's safe to say now as we, we sort of wrap up about his his career, he should be remembered as one of the best boxes to ever come out of Scotland and Britain as a whole. I think many will feel that Benny Lynch has got an argument for that, of course. And then you've got obviously Jim Watt with what he did in his career, maybe We'll do a career profile on Jim Watt one day as well, being one of Scotland's great himself. Going back to Ken Buchanan, I think it's, for me, looking into his career, looking into his life inside and outside of the ring, what he went on to do was, at the time, unprecedented. To become an undisputed, lightweight champion of the world, to beat an absolute legend in Ishmael Laguna, to share the ring with another legend in Roberto Duranan, to win the British title outright and become the European champion and defend that European title, I think you've got to say he achieved more than than probably what he initially envisaged he he was going to.
0: Absolutely, I mean what what a magnificent career for Ken Buchanan and and I mean. Him being inducted into that International Hall of Fame was was massive at the time in two thousand, and I believe at the time he was the only British fighter to have done it. I think I don't think Benny Lynch had been. Um, so this is obviously two thousand. Obviously, I think there's been a few more since then. But I mean, what? Yeah, the fact that he went over to all those countries, he made Madison Square Garden his home, and they loved him. They adored him. They, he was he got standing ovations from him in his performances, and you know some of those performances you can see on YouTube. They're not all there in full. Some of them are a little bit bad quality. So you do have to rely on sources, on reports, etc. But definitely an absolute brilliant fighter. And, and, you know, again, you look at him as a as an all-rounder in the British sense. I mean, as British boxers go, he's a guy that, especially in the modern day fighter, he easily makes the top 10. And, and he's a guy that, I mean, you stick him in the lightweights today, and I'm sure he would have given... Stowing a lightweight today in a very strong division, but he would have probably, he could have easily gone to anyone's backyard and got a result. And a great fight, and obviously, he had the problem with, with, with alcohol. I don't, I don't, he didn't really touch too much on his book. I mean, we've read, I've read articles, we've both read articles, we've both looked at videos and YouTube, etc. And he obviously did have a bit of a problem, obviously, he got into a bit of an abyss after the divorce of his wife and losing his, 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 his love, which was boxing, his obsession. And it was difficult for him to to get through that. And, I mean, he had some dark stories in the book. There was one incident with a guy that, when he was on sleeping pills and and a guy tried to touch him up (laughs) in his sleep. I mean, God knows what he was doing. Crazy, crazy story. I really, you know, the Titan legend that he is. I mean, read his book. It's a great read. It really was. I mean, I found myself hours and hours on end reading this book. and, And in the end, it was just this awful story of this guy he literally woke up and he's got his hands down his pants and he woke up and beat the living shit out of him. Yeah, awful story. You know, he's obviously in a really bad place, I'm not quite sure where he is now. I think he does a lot of tours and stuff. I think he's done one with Marvin Hagler once as well where he's actually climbed to Scotland Hagler and, you know, I'm sure a few people were on Twitter talking about it and, you know, I think he does all bits of talks and stuff. So, you know, he, he's, he's a very confident lad and he's, he's got some great stories and some great one-liners and quotes that we've, we've managed to pull together for this career profile. But, an absolute British legend for me and one that I really I like even more, to be honest with you.
1: I think one of the other things to go and check out about Ken Buchanan as well is the Ken Buchanan MBE Foundation that he's got as well at the moment. So obviously we were talking about the, the statue going up in Edinburgh, but he's also got a secondary purpose of this foundation. It's actually to help sponsor or otherwise support young fighters up and coming in Scotland that are showing promise or in other sports or or athletic events as well and it's really good that he actually has this foundation set up and it's run by himself and and a few other of his close associates that uh, are helping him develop the, the youth of Scotland really and essentially trying to keep these guys you know from getting into trouble and off the streets and try and give them the opportunities that you know some of these guys don't necessarily get so it's really good that he's got the Ken Buchanan Foundation as well so if you've not already checked that out you know, go and check it out it's on Twitter and it's on social media Facebook as well go and check out his Ken Buchanan Foundation but ultimately wrapping up the episode and the career profile of Of Ken Buchanan, yes, one of the great fighters to come out of Britain, one of, if not the greatest fighter to come out of Scotland, and you know, inspired so many great Scottish fighters, guys like Alex Arthur and Ricky Burns, and obviously Jim Watt, the young Jim Watt who was coming through at the time who he fought as well. So, so many great fighters that have come out of Scotland since Ken Buchanan, who were all inspired by Ken Buchanan, just goes to show you the magnitude of what he achieved in his career paved the way for for all these young guys to come through and go on and do excellent things in their own career and it's been an absolute pleasure as always to cover an episode for Career Profiles and cover a career of somebody that might have not been well known to a wider audience or a wider boxing audience and I know that a lot of the podcast listeners that come to our Career Profiles podcast do listen from the United States of America and Australia and various other places across the world and the hardcore fans will obviously know who Ken Buchanan is but some of the, the, more, the more casual fans that dip in and out of the sport will maybe not know how good of a career this guy really had and what he achieved and we hope that we've been able to give you a really good breakdown and some great stories of a career of what is really a truly great man in Ken Buchanan. So, as always, Fight Fans, thanks for listening. Go and check us out on social media, on Twitter at Career Underscore Profiles. The Facebook page for all our podcasts is BTR Boxing Podcast. Check out our Legendary Nights series and the main podcast feed too. And if you've not already subscribed to this Career Profiles podcast, then please... Go on any podcasting app out there, search Career Profiles, and you will find the podcast and all the latest episodes that we've done, and many that are going to come out in the future as well. We really hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Career Profiles with Ken Buchanan. The dream is made real! Ricky Hart rocks the
0: world! How do you like it? How do you like it? I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. It's over!